Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. You want Boris to be the human sponge over the next six to 12 months, don't you, to absorb the tsunami of woe that's coming in the Tories' direction. So Partygate may not get Boris Johnson, but cost of living and NHS waiting list will. I don't think that either Macron or Le Pen are greatly in the interests of Britain. I think I achieved positively Starmer-esque levels of fence-sitting this week. Get off the fence, love! One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Well, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak have been fined by the Metropolitan Police for breaking COVID lockdown rules. Are you furious? Do you think they should resign? Or do you feel that this Partygate scandal is all a fuss about relatively little? A plot by lefty media types to oust the Conservative government, seeing as Labour seems incapable of doing so by democratic means. To say this week's revelations are dividing opinion among Telegraph readers, no doubt Planet Normal listeners, and the population as a whole is something of an understatement. And be in no doubt there are more Partygate revelations to come. We're in the midst of the most serious cost-of-living crisis since the 70s, and there's a war on, with the UK not militarily engaging with Russia, but certainly deeply involved in framing Western reaction to Putin's invasion of Ukraine and in supporting President Zelensky's efforts to fight back. Your latest Telegraph offering, Alison, and the links in the show notes to this episode as ever, lays out the argument both for and against Boris Johnson resigning – You've written an on the one hand, on the other column, not unlike the one Johnson himself famously wrote when he was trying to decide whether or not to back Brexit. So what do you really think? Is Boris Johnson toast co-pilot? Should he be? I know. I think I achieved positively Starmer-esque levels of fence-sitting this week. Get off the fence, love! (laughs) She could neither confirm nor deny. Now, before we launch into this remarkably uneventful week, I need to ask you a technical question, co-pilot. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Right, so because I'm mainly domiciled on the Planet Normal rocket... (laughs) (laughs) I know where this is going. ...making very reluctant returns to planet Earth, can I, like Akshata Murti, Mrs Rishi Sunak, can I be a nom-dom... What do you think? Well, I'll answer your very technical question (laughs) with an anecdote, if only to spare Planet Normal listeners some inane detail. An accountant once said to me, oh, Liam, you're a classy geezer. I can make you a non-dom in Ireland. All you have to do is buy a plot and say you're going to bury yourself there when you die. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously? And I said, maybe not, Gov. I think Private Eye would have something to say about that. (laughs) I was going to say, given that I lay into chancellors of the Exchequer for a living, but now even they've got something to hide. Gosh, where does this all end? Until about 24 hours ago, Rishi and Ashata would have been our main topic of conversation. But since then, things have moved on. And now we have not just the poor chancellor, but the prime minister issued with penalty notices by the Metropolitan Police. Now, Yes, the question you posed, Liam, you know, should he stay or should he go? I was a bit on the fence in my column and I think actually that was reflecting a lot of the sort of sentiment. If Planet Normal listeners can be bothered to go into the show notes and look at my Telegraph column for this week, at the time of us starting to record the podcast, there were well over 3,000 spirited contributions from Telegraph readers. And I think there are two strands of opinion, Liam, which you put your finger on in the introduction. One is it's a storm in a teacup compared to the huge challenges we faced on the cost of living, the war in Ukraine. What's a bit of cake and a glass of Prosecco 
with colleagues after a hard day. People have got much better things to worry about. Anyone, everyone broke the rules. Let's be getting on with the job. Have you noticed how 27 ministers have said, we need to be getting on with the job? Anyone would think that their reactions are actually coordinated. Not that we would think anything would be going on, that they would be almost <laughs> issuing identical statements in support of the dear leader. And of course, then there's the other, the second strand of opinion but hang on, that isn't true. Millions of people kept the draconian lockdown rules at considerable cost to their mental and physical health for the rulemakers to get away with breaking their own rules. Doesn't that make a mockery of people's sacrifices? And you'll recall, co-pilot, that the Prime Minister told Parliament there were no parties and that the guidance was followed in number 10 at all times. Well, the fines do seem to be proof that the Prime Minister lied to Parliament when he said that he was unaware of any parties, even the ones at which he was present. And I think most of us still think that misleading Parliament is quite a serious matter. So that second strand of Conservative opinion is whatever happened to honour and integrity, Boris should resign immediately. I'm never going to vote Conservative again while Johnson is leader. But is it better the devil you know? And since Mr Sunak's own difficulties, we don't even have any alternative devils to point to, do we? I think you've summarised it well. What I would say is that readers should know that you literally wrote that column in very short order because you write your column on a Tuesday afternoon, the mm. revelations happened, and that's what journalists do. And you should be congratulated for that. That's the reality. And it, I think it was a clever device to do, and on the one hand, on the other, a kind of list of for and against. My instinct is this. There will always be forever pockets of real anger about lockdown, people whose parents' funerals were completely wrecked, people who felt their kids really suffered during lockdown when they weren't at school, people who watched their loved ones really suffer from the incarceration isn't too strong a word, the mental health no. implications. We shouldn't sniff at this. But I think they are just pockets. I'm not saying that those people's emotions aren't absolutely valid and I'm not denigrating them or telling them to pull themselves together at all. They will always feel enormous pain. But democracy is about numbers. Politics is about arithmetic. And I think for the vast majority of people, in the end, this is a recess. He's getting some time to pull himself together. I don't think the Tory backbenchers are going to cause a leadership election. They circled the wagons when these revelations happened very, very quickly while there was silence from lots of Conservatives, some key Conservatives, the sort of people who you think could back a Starmer-sparked vote of no confidence in the Commons, which could submit letters of protest to Graham Brady and spark a leadership election the Tories changing prime minister without a general election. People like Roger Gale, one of the Boris Johnson's leading critics on the Tory backbenches. People like Douglas Ross, the influential conservative leader in Scotland, the kind of people who you would think would immediately say Boris has to go. They said, no, he shouldn't go. Now is not the time. So the Conservatives were sort of circling the wagons, clinging on to power in a way that the party does. No wonder they have been the most successful political party holding power for so long, pretty much in the Western world, because they're ruthless about power. And however bad Boris Johnson is, I think for the vast majority of Conservatives, once the dust settles on this, and it will take a while to settle, there are going to be more Partygate revelations to come. There are going to be photos. It's going to get really bad. But the more they think about it, the more they're going to say Angela Rayner for Chancellor or Rishi Sunak. They're going to think Boris Johnson or Keir Starmer. They're going to look at the Labour alternative. And I think even some Labour people I've been talking to a lot over the last 20 24 hours, they're thinking, is this really the moment to launch an assault on Downing Street? Is Keir Starmer really ready? Isn't he more of a Kinnock rather than a Blair? So I think for lots of reasons, not putting to one side for one moment the pain that some people will really feel, the anger they will mm. feel. We've had lots of emails from Planet Normal listeners that are really, really moving about this. I think in the end, this will blow over 
not least because for so many people, they don't want politicians squabbling and having a general election or a leadership crisis in the midst of a massive cost of living situation, the worst we've seen since the 70s. I think that's right, Liam, but I do think that that chunk you're talking about, the people who think, my God, is there no integrity anymore? I can't put a percentage on it, but it's quite a lot of my readers and they are the ones who vote for the leader. So I wouldn't underestimate it. We've had at least 70 Tory MPs publicly supporting Boris Johnson after the fine. A couple of prominent people very silent. Nigel Mills has become the first Tory to call for Boris to resign. Now, a lot of people said prior to this, didn't they, a few weeks ago, that actual fines, this isn't a sort of crime, is it, as such, it's a criminal sanction. That's right. So as long as he's paid it, which he says he has paid it, it's not a criminal record, but it's still not great for the leader of the country. And so at the moment, as far as I'm aware, fewer than one in five Tories have spoken out in support of Boris. So I think there's going to be a lot of nerves. And as you said, there could be a lot worse to come. We've heard that the Sue Gray report, remember Sue Gray? That's probably out next week. You just know she's going to become a Trivial Pursuit question, don't you? (laughs) In 20 years' time, we'll be sort of playing Trivial Pursuit in our dotage. (laughs) (laughs) You'll say, I know that one. I know that one. It was Sue Gray. You know the way to remember it, because I can't remember anything anymore. So what we have to think with Sue Gray is that Sue Ellen in Dallas was played by Linda Gray. Linda Gray, that's right. When in 20 years' time, when they say, what was the woman who wrote the report into Partygate called? We'll all have to think of Dallas, Sue Ellen. I must say, I was more of a Charlene Tilton man myself. (laughs) She played Lucy, the sort of voluptuous one, or even slightly classier, not much, a Victoria Principal man who, of course, played Pam. Don't even think about messing me with 70s trivia. Did you look that up to impress me? No, I didn't. My other half, who, as you know, is uh, is the only man who could go in unarmed combat with you for irrelevant detail from 1973. It's Anthony Lane versus Liam Halligan. Oh, my God. I'll tell you what, people would pay money to see that. (laughs) Who played Huggy Bear in Starsky? And he says these things to me the whole time. You think, my God. Antonio Fargus. Exactly. (laughs) And that was too quick to Google. Listener, that is what we are doing. Who played Uncle Jesse in The Dukes of Hazzard? (laughs) Denver Pyle. Can you tell I grew up in a house with no books? Some precocious little (laughs) idiot. Yeah. Now, what do they put me in front of the telly and left me there for like four weeks at a time? <laughs> I thought Crossroads was Chekhov's. Still got a bit of a soft spot for that. <laughs> anyway, we digress. So Sue Gray report out next week. That's not going to be make very pleasant bedside reading for Boris. Also, the Metropolitan Police investigation is going on into Partygate. Yeah. And the Prime Minister is said to have been at four or even five more events under investigation. Something I think, Lee, the one that they've got done for this week. Poor Rishi turns up to a meeting in the cabinet office. Carrie comes in with the baby and the cake and starts singing. He has to raise a glass of orange juice, our very, very high probity chancellor. Now, Now the poor bugger's got slammed with this fine. I imagine he's absolutely seething. He's like the classroom SWAT who's got put into tension because the lads at the back were talking. (laughs) And he turned round and said to say, shh, and he gets put into tension as well. That is absolutely spot on. But, sir... (laughs) But, sir, I do all my work. I've just delivered a spring statement. Shut up, Rishi. So I think that these other events, including the events in the Downing Street flat, my strong suspicion is that Mrs. Carrie Johnson was allegedly or possibly inviting her mates up there on a regular basis, which, as we know, was completely against the rules. And also it would have been Carrie bringing in the birthday cake and the balloons and the party blowers. So there could be a lot more to come. What if he gets more fixed penalty notices? At what point will people say this is just an excruciating embarrassment? Plus, of course, we've got the joy on May the 5th, Liam, of the local elections. I think bloodbath isn't going to be in it. What do you think? It's going to be sort of fixed penalty notice bingo, isn't it? House, two little ducks. I think there's obviously going to be a lot of voters out 
to give the Tories a bloody nose in these local elections, and rightly so. But I think because there is such more pain to come, it's another thing which could save the Prime Minister. Can you see Liz Truss, Sajid Javid, any of the pretenders, any of the... And they're both serious people with serious leadership ambitions, and I respect them for that. I'm not wishing to undermine them in any way But can you see them with their sort of tactical acumen going for it now? I mean, you want Boris to be the human sponge over the next six Mm. to 12 months, don't you, to absorb the sort of tsunami of woe that's coming in the Tories' direction. And the cost of living crisis is going to get worse before it gets better. So, again, that's another reason why I can't see people on the backbenches putting in their letters to Sir Graham Brady because you put letters in in a sort of systematic way because you are backing another leadership candidate and you put those letters in on condition that you then get something from a trust administration or Javid administration or whatever it is. That is how politics works. There are no horses, but there's lots of horse trading. And I think just on this cost of living crisis, because we're guilty so far in this podcast of what we accuse the rest of the media of doing, focusing on political protest and trivia. Yeah, Antonio Fargus in Starsky and Hutch, <laughs> rather than the real substance. Victoria Principle, yes. <laughs> Carry on. She had incredible eyes. They're absolutely huge. Anyway. <laughs> I'm glad you're looking at her eyes, Halligan. That's good. Like a sort of human King Charles Spaniel or something. <laughs> but the numbers that have come out Wednesday morning, I'm not surprised but I'm shocked. 30-year high in UK inflation, 7%. It's another 30-year high. You know, we were at a 30-year high in inflation before this Ukraine conflict started. So let's not let the Bank of England governor, who constantly assured us that inflation wasn't a problem or will be transitory, off the hook. You can't blame this on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The first kind of Russia-Ukraine conflict inflation number that we've seen, because it's for March and Putin invaded on the 24th of February, has now come out and it shows the consumer price index in March was 7% higher than a year before. That's obviously completely outstripping the Bank of England's 2% target. The RPI number, the retail price index, the old measure the Bank of England targeted, that's at 9%. But the number that really jumped out at me, which isn't getting much coverage, but I think it's the key number, is stand by your bunks co-pilot, the PPI, which is... No, listen now. You sent me my homework. (laughs) Go on then. (laughs) This is almost Rishi Sunak in its level of swattiness. Pearson, for one house point, what was the PPI in March and what does PPI mean? The producer price index is the cost of inputs firms use to make the stuff they sell us. And the PPI hit 19.2% in March. Well done, one house point. <laughs> but one house point off for not calling me sir. So 19.2% is a very, very big number. Yeah. So what that means is that the inputs that not just manufacturers but other firms need to make the stuff that they sell us were in March, on average, 19.2% higher than in March 2021. And in the end, the reason the PPI is what we call a leading indicator, because it points to where the CPI is going in the end, unless firms are going to go bust or really see their profits diminish, their margins crunched, those PPI inflation increases have to be passed on. That's called supply chain inflation. And we are seeing big supply chain inflation coming through now in those PPI numbers. And that's why I think it is not alarmist at all that we are going to see even CPI inflation, which I think is a huge underestimate, the one that they headline. For thickers like your co-pilot, this could be an indicator of what consumer prices are going to go up to. Yes, it's a leading indicator. It tells you where the CPI will eventually go because those cost increases do have to be passed on. And that's why there's going to have to be some kind of emergency budget. There's going to have to be some kind of additional help We've got benefits going up. They just went up last week by 3.1% for the next year. And yet inflation is officially forecast to be almost 8% and it's going to be higher than that. So that means our most vulnerable families are getting massively below inflation increases in what are often quite meagre benefits. That's just politically unsustainable. There was quite a lot of stuff about this sort of Sunak's, her having sexist whatever. She's got different 
tax arrangements to her husband. And I was thinking, hang on a minute, if you are applying for universal credit, your partner's earnings and savings will be taken into account as to how much the state will give you. And this woman, Akshata Murti, who has £727 million worth of shares in her father's Infosys company, chose not to pay UK tax on her foreign earnings. And my feeling, Liam, was you don't have to be hostile to success or to wealth to think that something isn't quite right about that setup. Because as we've discussed before on Planet Normal, Rishi Sunak took a decision, didn't he, in that spring statement to not offer more help to those people. I mean, I just read this thing this morning. I mean, these are numbers. You know numbers. I don't know numbers. 30.7% annual rise in the cost of fuel is the highest on record. That's not even as high as it's going to go. So I'm starting to feel really quite sick about this. And I feel quite angry, actually. I know I keep banging on about this, but such a huge chunk of our energy bills, it's 5% VAT on British people's energy bills, almost 25% going towards green renewables. Now, when is Rishi Sunak, if indeed he's still in the job, when is he going to slash these tariffs on fuel bills? Because it's not going to be funny. It's not going to be pretty, is it? Well, to govern is to choose, as the saying goes. I don't think Rishi Sunak didn't uprate benefits by more because he didn't want to, because everybody wants to hand out money, and Sunak got pretty good at it during lockdown with all those furlough schemes and so on. But he could have done it if he chose to do it by making cuts elsewhere. The benefit bill is absolutely huge, and if you upgrade benefits across the board, including universal credit, which you mentioned, including housing benefit and the basic state pension, then you are talking very, very big numbers quite quickly. But I still think he should have done it. He should have found a way to do it in order to signal at these very, very difficult times that the Conservatives are on the side of, if you like, the working classes, lower income workers. It was an astonishing political achievement for the Conservatives to reverse decades, hundreds of years of British history by becoming the natural party of the working class, which is what they did in December 2019, Mm. with Labour losing that automatic, instinctive link with that part of the electorate. You do not squander that. You find every single way you can to preserve that achievement and cement that achievement. Boris Johnson rightly said when he won that election in December 2019, these red wall voters have lent us their votes. And to me, that is the central part of this conundrum. Those red wall voters that Boris Johnson needs to hang on to, to hold on to his Tory majority, they care a lot more about bread and butter issues benefit levels, you know, managing this cost of living squeeze than they do about Partygate. That's why I think Labour will suffer if they go on and on and on about Partygate and the Tories will be able to eventually ride this out. So Partygate may not get Boris Johnson, but cost of living and NHS waiting list will. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea... Please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! A month ago, Emmanuel Macron appeared all but certain to become the first French president to win re-election since Jacques Chirac in 2002. But in the first round of voting on Sunday... While Macron led the field with 28% of the vote, Marine Le Pen of the National Rally Party scored 23%. Far-left firebrand Jean-Luc Mélenchon came third on 21%, while the far-right polemicist Éric Zemmour was fourth on 7%. 
The Republicans and Socialists, the long-standing parties of the French establishment, were hammered into near insignificance. They scored just 7% of the vote between them. With Le Pen polling well among younger voters, there's speculation she could beat Macron in the second round runoff on Sunday, April the 24th. Much depends on how Mélenchon and Zemmour supporters reallocate their votes, or if they vote at all. And the extent, of course, to which Le Pen, who stresses concerns about the cost of living these days as much as about immigration, can play down the extremist reputation of the political dynasty of which she is part. So where are French politics heading now, Alison? Who better to guide us than our latest planet normal stowaway, somebody we've both admired for a long time? He's climbing aboard the rocket, the Cambridge University Professor of French History, Robert Toombs. I started by asking him, could Le Pen actually win in the second round? Well, I don't think so. Um, but I could be out of date. I'm a historian and I tend to think perhaps sometime in a rather retrospective way. And because for most of her career, and of course her father's career, because, you know, this is a, really a family enterprise that goes back 50 years, there was no way that either Le Pen's could win because there was such a burden of historical associations that they carried with them. And so anybody who was not Le Pen would win. So when Jean-Marie Le Pen stood against Jacques Chirac, popular slogan was, better vote for a crook than a fascist. And so Chirac naturally won. Macron naturally won when he ended up facing Marine Le Pen in the last elections, because the whole Le Pen brand was so tainted by its association with lots of unpleasant things. You could say the father more than the daughter, but the fact is it's a movement that retains a certain identity, and that's what gives it its force in a way. These were people who were associated with the Vichy regime of Marshal Pétain, some of the older members, okay, they're all dead now, but nevertheless, there was a strong connection with that. There was a strong connection with the Algérie Française extreme movement that had tried to bump off General de Gaulle several times. You know, we remember it because of the novel The Jackal. It was associated with anti-Semitism. And so it had a lot of baggage that most French people would not touch with a barge pole. So you could just, you could just say, well, a Le Pen just cannot win. But then the question now is, is that still true? You know, everyone says, well, Marine Le Pen has been busy detoxifying her brand. But it nevertheless is still a brand. And the question is, to what extent she has detoxified it? And the second question is, to what extent younger voters are not so bothered about historical associations as their parents and grandparents were? You know, I know plenty of people in France, indeed, including members of my own French family, who would never under any circumstances, vote for a Le Pen. But then that just may not be so true now as it was even five years ago. Isn't that the really big reveal over the recent weeks, the surge in support for Marine Le Pen among young French voters, people who don't remember de Gaulle, don't remember struggles about Algerian independence. They haven't read The Day of the Jackal or even seen the movie. Brilliant, <laughs> brilliant novel and movie, though they are. Has that surprised you? you? You're married to a French woman. You spent much of your life in France. You speak superb French. You're one of the foremost historians of France in, in the world. <laughs> are you surprised at how many younger voters have overcome that hurdle that's been there for so long among mainstream French opinion? Yes, I am a bit surprised, I admit, because un unlike us, I mean, I was reading a thing the other day that said 30% of British school leavers think Winston Churchill was a fictional figure or something like that. We don't really know much history. A lot of people don't, and they don't really care. But French culture is very historical. Kids at school learn a lot more history than we do. Any French kid who's been to a lycée will have studied the Second World War and all that. So the question is, as you say, is it something that they simply shrug off as being the long, dead and distant past now? And that I don't know. And I think only the second round election will show. People vote in the first round of these elections, often as a protest. It used to be said you vote in the first round 
for the person you like, and in the second round, you vote against the person you dislike. But in this case, it may not quite be that. It might be that in the first round, you let off steam. In the second round, you, um, you think about practicalities. You think about the person who's going to be in charge of the country for the next five years. People are going to say, well, if we did vote for Marine Le Pen, what will it mean in practice? So I think a lot of young people who are certainly very alienated from the system, from a system they think of as incompetent, corrupt, indifferent to them, will vote for Le Pen as a protest, and perhaps to some extent to shock their elders. Will, will they vote for her in the second round? And that is, of course, the big question that none of us knows the answer to. My guess is that they won't, at least not enough of them. But it's not impossible that they will. And it's also not impossible that enough people would abstain to push down the Macron vote. I mean, Macron is, for reasons I admit, I don't wholly understand. I'm not an, a great admirer of Macron. I don't detest Macron. I mean, I think Macron's an able man and all that. But I am often surprised at how many people in France seem to actually loathe him. There seem to be quite a lot of people who will say, OK, I'm not going to vote for Macron. I don't care who wins, but I'm not going to vote for him. And that, I think, again, is another question. It's, it's a question about whether people are so angry, they're going to say, um, I don't care. I'm going to express my anger and I don't give a damn for the consequences. And that's unusual after all in elections. People usually think, what's it going to do to my pay packet? What's it going to do to crime in the streets? And already things have been happening in France which are scary. There have been riots in a couple of cities. And I think a lot of people would think, well, if Macron at least is the devil we know, we sort of know what we're going to get, which is maybe not very much, but it's not going to be the end of the world. If Le Pen's elected, what will it mean? And again, nobody knows the answer to that. We'll come on to the second round decider, which is um, later this month on the 24th of April. In a moment, Professor Toombs, I want to ask you first about the quite astonishing collapse of the centre, if you like, because, of course, Macron's En Marche movement that bears his initials was a kind of pop-up political party. It's itself is not an establishment party. It's tried to pose as anti-establishment. People haven't really believed it's anti-establishment credentials. But we can't have this conversation without marking the fact, the astonishing fact, that the Republican Party, that Jacques Chirac, Nicolas Sarkozy's party, scored 5%. And the famous French Socialist Party, Mitterrand, Hollande, 2%. That's astonishing. We've seen the centre collapse in Germany. We've seen the CDU and the SBD between them for the first time in recent years score less than 50% of the German vote combined, which was an incredible collapse. But for these two main political parties to score 7% between them, that is mind-boggling to me. It is, and to me too. We can try to explain it. But yes, nevertheless, it is extraordinary because these are the two parties that have dominated French politics for 50 years and more. One of them being the party of General de Gaulle, really. And before that, based on a tradition of Christian democracy in France and moderate conservatism in France, which goes back a long way. And the Socialist Party, you know, a proud tradition, at very least comparable with the Labour Party in Britain, of struggles against fascism in the 1930s, resistance, the growth of the Socialist Party goes back to the late 19th century. It's older than the Labour Party. And yet these things have just disappeared in a cloud of smoke, as it were. And I find it extremely difficult to understand. It nevertheless is an extraordinary phenomenon and really a rather worrying one for anybody who does not think that revolution is a jolly good thing and let's smash the system and so on. The system has really been pretty well smashed. And it's far from clear what is going to replace it. We know politics in France can get pretty punchy. I think quite a lot of the British, we have this incredible love-hate relationship with France, don't we? I think a lot of people in the UK admire the French that they protest. And you've seen you know, the Gilets jaunes movement, which is being emulated here. France famously had a revolution and we didn't. It's a cliche, but it's true. Do you think... That this complete collapse of the centre does really pave the way for more extreme French politics going forward, even if you're right and Marine Le Pen doesn't win. 
Yes, I think the answer is it will certainly open a period of instability and political change. It's true, of course, that we often do admire the French and think, well, you know, maybe we should do this occasionally when we get annoyed with our politicians. But I forget to which 19th century political commentator said, French politics is a bit like those opera choruses that are constantly singing march, march, but they never actually go anywhere. And in many ways, you know, French politics is something that often generates a lot of heat and a lot of excitement. But at the end of the day, nothing much has changed. And that is one of the causes of discontent in France, I think. I mean, I'm not saying that France is a uniquely discontented country, far from it. And indeed, you know, looking around the world, it's hard to see any country in which people are terribly happy with their politics. But nevertheless, there is, I think, a, a very widespread feeling in France. And to a large extent, I think it's true that whatever happens, nothing much changes. You know, this famous French saying, uh, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And uh, just like French pop singers seem to stay around for a very long time, so do French politicians. And one of them said a couple of years ago, he said, only death ends a political career in France. Nothing else prevents you from comeback. You know, you feel in France, it's as if you were seeing a contest between Gordon Brown and... Tony Blair for control of the left. Yesterday's men are never really yesterday's men in France. They're always around and they're always trying to come back. Many people feel that whatever they vote for and whatever politicians say, essentially the system will not change. Some people say yes, but that's because they don't really want it to change. And although the French have often say of themselves that they're a nation of grumblers, they grumble in order to let off steam, but they don't really want anything much to change. Yet mediocrity does often hang around in France, despite it being a nation of such exquisite taste under so many headings. I never did understand the Johnny Hallyday fixation myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the reallocated votes as we go forward, isn't it? And it's all about the extent to which Le Pen voters in the first round switch or indeed abstain, as you say. So Macron in the first round won about 28% of the vote. Le Pen came in at 23%. Mélenchon came third on 21%, the far left guy. Eric Zemmour, much talked about, he got 7%. I want to ask you where you think those results are going to go in a moment. But I think a question that will be on the minds of lots of people, if France does become more extreme, if Marine Le Pen does win this election, and it would be absolutely astonishing, what would that mean for the European project, a project that you've taken huge interest in over many years? Somebody with your incredible knowledge of continental politics and legal structures, constitutional history... You did back Brexit. You observe pan-European politics very, very closely. What do you think it would mean for the European Union, for the euro, if Le Pen won? Well, a huge problem. It might be tempting for some Brexiteers to say, well, wouldn't it be good if Le Pen was elected because that would really mess up the chances of European integration and so on. As we know, Macron is the great prophet and defender of the idea of a sovereign Europe, as he always calls it. And Le Pen certainly stands for a Eurosceptic policy. It would certainly be one in the eye for Brussels if she were elected and a great problem for them. But cooler heads would say that it's not really in our interest that there should be a great crisis in the EU that would bring down the euro. Because we would certainly feel the effect. I think what we want, what I say as a Brexiteer we want, is a Europe that is ticking over reasonably well, which is not so desperate that it's trying to hurt us and that is not going to um, infect us with its own problems. And so from that point of view, I don't think that either Macron or Le Pen are greatly in the interests of Britain because Macron, of course, he seems to be pretty hostile to us over Brexit and he certainly is in favour of a greatly increased European federalism. And Le Pen will certainly cause a crisis, but would it be a crisis that would harm us? It might be. We don't want France to be in turmoil. We don't want the Eurozone to collapse. If the things that Marine Le Pen says are serious, then she would certainly be challenging the Euro on a whole variety of topics. And it would make Poland and Hungary look very small beer compared with what a Le Pen government would be demanding of Brussels. 
So let's drill down into those other votes that are up for grabs, if indeed these voters turn out. 7% of people went for Eric Zamor, who's characterised as a sort of right-wing polemicist in the first round. You'd think most of them would back Le Pen over Macron, given a choice. And then you've got Mélenchon, who's always there or thereabouts for a long time in French politics. The the far-left firebrand, he got 21% of the vote. Le Pen has made gestures towards that side of the political debate by stressing the cost of living over recent weeks and months, as much as she's been stressing immigration. Would you agree, Professor Toombs, that those Mélenchon votes really are the key to the outcome on April the 24th? Well, a lot of people, of course, have been doing this kind of arithmetic and totting up the various totals. Uh, it, It assumes that the candidates can deliver their vote, which has been a kind of assumption in French politics, but it doesn't always work. The people who are voting for Mélenchon are themselves rather a a mixed bunch. And polls suggest that about a third of his voters would vote for Macron, about a third would vote for Le Pen, and about a third would abstain. And I think a lot depends on how many people are going to be so disgusted that they're going to say, I won't vote for either candidate. And that would hurt Macron more, I think, because Macron depends on collecting the votes of a lot of people who don't really like him very much but whom he wants to convince that Le Pen is a danger. And if people are going to say, I just don't care anymore, then that's not going to work. I think we're bound to get a huge attempt to mobilise Project Fear over the next couple of weeks. And I think it's in part justified. I wrote a piece in The Telegraph on Sunday um, suggesting this, and a lot of readers were very cross. But, you know, I think you have to accept the fact that if Marine Le Pen was elected, it would be a major political crisis. And it would cause a lot of disturbance. Okay, maybe you'd say, well, so what? What do we care? But France is a major ally and ought to be a friendly partner of ours. And I don't think that Madame Le Pen is going to be any more friendly towards us than Monsieur Macron. Well, Robert Toombs, it's been a pleasure to have you on The Rocket of Right Thinking. You do a tremendous amount of work aside from your world-class academic research. You've set up History Reclaimed in recent years, briefings for Brexit. You are, I think, Alison and I would agree, one of those rare academics who manages to really speak to a very wide and broad audience. And we're most grateful to you for your work. Well, it's very kind of you to say that. It's a great pleasure to be talking to you. Oh, that was great, Liam. I love listening to Robert Toombs. I'm a huge admirer. Planet Normal listeners might like to know, actually, that in the past couple of years, I've bought two of Robert's books, This Sovereign Isle, Britain in and out of Europe. Fantastic description of our fraught relations with that nation and that sweet enemy, Britain and France. And Robert Toombs wrote that with his French wife, Isabel. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it, Liam, to think what could possibly happen. Now, something that's jumped out from your discussion with Robert, really, is the disappearance of the parties of de Gaulle and Mitterrand. I mean, almost down to a kind of handful of dust, absolutely shattering. And and the other thing I've been thinking about is Marine Le Pen, of course, is routinely just described as far right. And while she is certainly far right culturally and socially, economically, she's much closer to Jean-Luc Mélenchon. And she's the far left economically, isn't she? Promising the under 30s they don't have to pay any income tax. So she's a more nuanced figure, I think, which could account for some of her appeal. I think that's right. And she's worked very, very hard over a number of years to distance herself from the Le Pen dynasty, if you like, which is, of course, associated with quite unsavoury, proper far-right extremism, even anti-Semitism, it must be said. What's really surprised me, and maybe I should have made more of it when I had the privilege of talking to Robert Toombs, was how many younger French voters, they don't remember Jean-Marie Le Pen. They don't remember his chest-beating speeches. They see Marine Le Pen as more modern, somebody in touch with the working class, somebody who talks a lot about social justice. And she has been making this tack away from her father, publicly falling out with him, 
whether stage managed or not, in order to appeal to a broader swathe of French voters. And you kind of get the feeling, if not now, when? This is probably the best shot that she's going to have. She's been there or thereabouts in the second round in the past, but Macron is really weak. When somebody like Robert Toombs tells you that he is surprised how many people across France detest Emmanuel Macron, I mean, this bloke knows more about French politics probably than any British person. I mean, that's not an exaggeration. No, he doesn't. He doesn't just say things, and unlike me, he really weighs his words very, very carefully. I was pleased when he agreed with me about, as you say, the two main parties of the centre-left and centre-right in France getting less than 10% of the vote. That really is the astonishing thing. So who is going to benefit from that? It's not just a collapse. It's a complete implosion of the centre ground of French politics. Well, it's probably going to be the people on the extremes and it may well be Le Pen's year. I would never gainsay Robert Toombs, but it wouldn't surprise me looking at the polls going forward if even with Project Fear, which Robert Toombs predicts will now really kick in, she doesn't get pretty close. No, I think she could get close. And I think that in the past, they've always relied on all the forces of righteousness sort of pulling together to keep her out in the second round. But there are lots of variables. By the way, Liam, I'd like to really recommend to Planet Normal listeners and to you if you haven't seen it. We watched an absolutely superb French TV series on Amazon Prime called Baron Noir. And if you want to understand the dark intersections and machinations of French politics, it's absolutely incredible. But but it was interesting to hear Robert Toombs say, even if my boyfriend doesn't get re-elected, you might think, oh, great, because, you know, Macron has shown no affection for the UK and his negotiations with Putin, I think, have been pretty disgraceful in many ways. You still quite fancy him, though, don't you? No, no, I told you, I'm Is too young gone? for him. I'm too young for him. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the idea that her coming in would somehow be of benefit to us, as Robert said so articulately, may well be a, a delusion. Before we move on to emails, Alison, I did just want to bring up another subject that's close to your heart that we've covered on Planet Normal that you wrote about again this week, and rightly so, with all the news going on, geopolitics, cost of living crisis, you are really banging the drum, aren't you, now for the concerns you have and many other people have about some parts of the British midwifery profession. Yes, somebody forwarded me an advert that had been placed by the Northumbria Healthcare Foundation Trust on the NHS Jobs website, Liam, and they were looking for a a midwife who was committed to the philosophy of normal birth, providing a friendly birth experience within a low-risk setting. Now, we talked on Planet Normal, didn't we, about the absolutely excoriating report two weeks ago by Donna Ockenden into the dreadful scandal at Shrewsbury and Telford Hospital Trust where over 200 babies and nine mothers died there in no small part precisely because of a fixation with this philosophy of normal birth. Now, since then, I've had scores and scores of the most upsetting emails from parents, from doctors, from midwives, disillusioned midwives themselves. And as one listener said to me, of all the medical specialties, obstetrics can be the most harrowing. Every birth has the potential to turn rapidly into a crisis. And I suppose why I've returned to this topic, Liam, is because I think most parents-to-be would assume that there would be a doctor on hand to intervene and get the baby out if there was a problem. But as I've just discovered, there are these things called midwife-led units, which 75% of NHS trusts now have. And quite often, you won't have an obstetrician there because a lot of midwives don't want men on the premises. And, And that's putting it very bluntly, I know. But I am really bothered that the old school of midwives who work very well with doctors, be they male or female, that this has now become a cult, an ideology which is endangering mums and Babies. So I have, in that co-pilot Pearson way, taken up the cudgels. And, and I think that some of these units, they're geographically distant from hospitals. So if there's a problem and you need to get the baby out, there isn't anybody 
there to get the baby out. Not only that, I'm being told that midwives will deliberately not escalate the situation because they just think, give it another couple of hours of pushing and everything will be fine. But I've got emails in my inbox that would reduce you to tears, co-pilot, from people where just push the baby out went drastically wrong. So I hope that this will be something that the Telegraph and on Planet Normal that we will continue to campaign on because it's not nice to think that our mums and babies are at risk here. Now on to our listener emails. A bumper crop this week, many of them addressing the plight of our Prime Minister. Liam, if you look below my article, as I said, I think that there were over 3,000 comments <laughs> today. Should Boris stay or should he go? Here's just a bit of a cross-section for you, Jerry. Lied to the Commons three or four times, blatant lies. That's what is important, not the cake ambush. He should go after the local elections. Judith says he must go. He has no honour. Clive says having no honour is usual in politicians, though. <laughs> Michael, people who write laws forbidding gathering and eating cake should not gather and eat cake. David says, lied to Parliament, that should be enough. I, for one, whatever the circumstances in Ukraine, no longer wish to be represented by a lawbreaker and a liar. But Tony says, be careful what you wish for. The alternatives are far worse. And I think agrees with you, Liam. People do care about Partygate, but they're aware that there are other huge world concerns at present. The lies and deceit will not be forgotten by the many who made enormous personal sacrifices. Lies do not go unpunished. Michael says, I'm far from Boris's greatest fan, but what's the alternative? Labour led by that nobody, Keith Starmer, accompanied by Raider, Reeves, Nandy and Rebecca Wrongdaily. The lack of quality among the two main parties is something to behold. Bad and all as Boris is, he ended this lockdown nonsense. The Labour swivel-eyed loons would have us back protecting our wonderful <laughs> NHS and in lockdown by June. And Sally, finally, if Boris dropped the net zero target, stood up to woke nonsense and the shouty minority, got a grip on illegal immigration, completely dismissed all remaining COVID regulations, brought back proper nursing and policing, got the shirkers back to work. Oh, heck, haven't even got to education, housing, vanity projects, fraud. What a mess. You know, I'd vote for Sally, Liam. <laughs> <laughs> Here's one from Elizabeth. Dear Alison and Liam. My sister was finally discharged from hospital last Wednesday. Fortunately, there are sufficient funds for her to have gone for convalescent care at a local home. But despite having contracted Omicron in hospital and having the required two negative tests, the home still classed her as suspect. This means she's undergoing 10 days isolation. Even prisoners are treated with more humanity. She was granted permission to sit outside with her husband after a risk assessment was carried out, but they were escorted to the bench and told they must not sit together and they must be masked. In order for my brother-in-law to be allowed to visit, he had to get permission and sign a waiver. There is a great deal more I could say about the disgraceful lack of post-hospital care, Elizabeth continues, but I'll confine myself to this. Not everyone can go home to hot and cold running staff. Not everyone has someone who can step in. And who is the genius who decided that convalescent homes were no longer necessary? Thank you, Alison and Liam, for giving a voice to the otherwise unheard. And there's a PS. My sister has all her marbles, but for the latter part of her seven-week hospital stay, she was on the dementia ward because apparently there were no other beds available. The NHS is very much the curate's egg. Will its manifest shortcomings ever be addressed. Very good email, Elizabeth. Liam, we've had some absolutely terrific emails from listeners and readers about this, what I see as a crisis in maternity provision. So if you have had any awareness or if you've had experience, if listeners have had any experience themselves of giving birth or having children in the family who've had traumatic births, or if you've worked in a hospital and know about it, please do get in touch with us because I'm really building up my bank of knowledge. This is Rosemary. When I trained as a midwife in 1985, the normal 
quote unquote, of midwifery was drummed into us. I don't mean to pursue a natural birth at any cost, but so we would instantly recognise the abnormal and act on it. As an education and practice development midwife, I continue to teach this. However, I have worked with midwives who take the tack described in Alison's article, a normal birth at all costs. It has been worrying at times to see this blind passion. Fortunately, I was in a senior position with good relationships with the obstetricians to be able to override this zealousness when needed. I have worked with many sensible, experienced midwives who are devastated to see how midwifery is going now. I have to say, though, that when I first qualified, there would be 12 midwives on the delivery suite and four on each of the three wards for 4,500 deliveries every year. By the time I retired in 2014, we were lucky if there were 10 to 12 midwives for the whole unit for 5,500 deliveries. The women in our care had far more complications. Women are getting pregnant now who never would have got pregnant 30 years ago. Women with heart disease, renal failure, etc., This adds to the risks involved and to the workload. More and more targets are set by the government and sadly there is a culture of bullying in midwifery that doesn't seem to be seen as much in general nursing. Fifteen years ago the Nursing and Midwifery Council realised that there was going to be a mass exodus of midwives from my age group all retiring at the same time, leaving behind inexperienced staff and fewer numbers. Was anything done? You can guess. It makes me very sad to read about midwife bashing, as there are still a lot of excellent, passionate midwives out there who are doing a wonderful job, trying to keep their heads above water and provide safe care for their women. But the system is a big problem. Also extremely strong co-pilot from Susan. I retired in 2006 as a senior midwife, an experienced registered general nurse before training in midwifery. I joined a hospital in 1980 that was involved early in the wider acceptance of women directly going into midwife training, i.e. not previously training as nurses. After post-qualification experience, most of them did superbly, but those of us with RGN experience had earlier self-confidence and a pre-instilled understanding of the medical-surgical aspects involved, which brought advantages when problems arose. Midwifery then was at a point when modern technology had, in some hospitals, resulted in women being subjected to unnecessary medicalization of the birthing process. Many pregnant women, as well as midwives, were seeking to redress the balance. But as you point out, Alison, staffing levels declined over the years. It was also clear that a good percentage of women then entering directly into midwifery training were very enthusiastic about the move towards the so-called normalising of childbirth. We struck a balance by ensuring thorough antenatal assessment, home deliveries where desired, and suitable and varied labour oversight on the one delivery suite, which gave immediate access to obstetric care when the need arose. One of my colleagues remarked back in the 1990s, when we have all retired, there will be problems. She meant those of us who had entered nursing services in the 60s and 70s. And whilst I was then sceptical, I think she's been proven correct. The system needs review. Very strong stuff, Alison, from Planet Normal listeners on the question of midwifery. We will keep focused on this topic, not least through your columns, but also here on the rocket. That is it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason our flying refuge of reasoned views it's your email of the week Alison I think we'll give it to Elizabeth Liam who wrote that very moving email and also talked about the lack of convalescence I I agree with every word she wrote well Elizabeth do email us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk and put mug winner in the subject heading of that email and one of those fabulous planet normal mugs will be winging its way to you 
If you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It makes co-pilot Halligan's week. He's always telling me, have you read our marvellous reviews? It does help others to find us, believe it or not, so the Planet Normal family can grow. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal for another week and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view and it really is pretty mad at the moment. <laughs> Thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt, our editor Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.